Hello, you're listening to season two of Everyday Creative People. I'm your host, Dina Adrians, and this podcast is all about the question, what does it mean to live a life driven by curiosity, creativity, and love over fear? Each week, you can tune in to hear me discussing various topics related to this question with leaders, artists, and entrepreneurs who are each living out this pursuit in their own unique ways. When you've finished listening to today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast, leave a comment, and tell a friend. You can find all the show notes over at dinaadrians.com slash ecppodcast. Now settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Creative People. I am here today with Roger Nirenberg. Roger is a conductor who has enjoyed long tenures as music director of both the Jacksonville Symphony in Florida and the Stamford Symphony in Connecticut. His conducting work has brought him all over the world to the podium of the London Philharmonic, the Residentia Orchest, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the New Zealand Symphony, the National Symphony, and the Symphony Orchestras of Cities all across the U.S., and he's collaborated with musicians from more than 100 orchestras all around the world. Uh, and something that I'm particularly excited about is that Roger is also the creator of The Music Paradigm. Uh, so from what I understand, the music paradigm is basically an interactive learning experience that brings teams into the orchestra rehearsal process to discover critical lessons about leadership and teamwork. And he actually places participants directly amongst the orchestra positions. So they're sort of seated in the mix to get a sense of really what's happening there and also gain fresh understandings about the opportunities and challenges faced by their own organization. So Roger has been developing this program over, I guess, the last 20 years or so. Um, and he has presented to hundreds of different organizations from civic groups to Fortune 500 companies in two, do two dozen, excuse me, different countries, and also has recorded sort of the lessons and experience of the music paradigm in a book called Maestro, A Surprising Story About Leading by Listening, which tells it in a little bit of a narrative format, which is cool. So, Roger, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tina. So tell me, just to sort of start off with, I'm curious to get a little bit of sort of an overview of your musical career. Have you always had music in your life? Yeah. I mean, I basically decided I wanted to be a musician when I was nine years old. Nine years old. All right. What was it that made you decide that you wanted that? It was the discovery of the Beethoven symphonies. Hmm. And, uh, and it was playing in, in my school band. Like you, I was a trumpet player at that mm -hmm. time. And, uh, and uh, there was this thrill, this electric thrill that I experienced when I played in the orchestra. It was hard for me to stay seated because there was so much energy that I felt. And, um, and, then, uh, so, and then I discovered the Beethoven symphonies, which was like, it was, it was a whole other world, and I'd never experienced anything like that. Uh, mm. And I just thought, I don't know what this is, but whatever it is, this is what I want my life to be about. <laughs> and was it, um, I think I saw somewhere that you studied music composition in high school? Is That's that absolutely right. Yeah, as soon as I could 
as soon as I could read music, I, I wanted to write it, and I, I wanted to write something like the Eroica Symphony, and so I started, <laughs> I started writing music down. Wow. And, um, and then uh, when I was in junior high school, I, I went and I studied with a, uh, a really great, uh, uh, well-known composer, and, and that was kind of the foundation of my music training, and e even today. Uh, the things that I learned from my teacher, Ellie Siegmeister, are still very much part of the way I approach every piece mm -hmm. of music that I do. Mm -hmm. So what are like some of the things that you, that you, what are some of those sort of early lessons that you're still using? Well, I look at, I approach a piece of music from the way it's designed. I, I'm very conscious of how how the continuity is made and where, you know, a sort of goal oriented approach towards the music mm. and where is it going? How is it getting there? What it, what is its shape? Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, people who, who uh, l come into music from, from the point of view of an instrument, they're focused on how do I make this instrument sound best, which is really important. Mm. Uh, that too. But I'm thinking about how do I make this phrase you know, come alive. What What are the forces that enable this phrase to live? So it's a it's a somewhat different orientation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that as as a singer, and and um, I just think back to sort of my own experiences with singing and going through voice lessons, and I feel like I I, I also took away a lot of those sorts of lessons of like looking at the piece as a whole and and. Um, and actually in, in theater as well, you know, it's, it's sort of looking at the whole piece and figuring out the, the emotions of the different parts and how do you bring the, each of those things out. Yeah, and for example, in theater, of course, every, uh, every character has a, what do you call it, a uh, objective, right? Mm. It's very important to understand your character's objective. Yes. What is this character trying to accomplish, you know? And I like to think of what is this melody's objective? What, what, does it want, what does it want to be? What does it want to, what does it want to become? Yeah. Uh, and that that gives a lot of power to uh, to describing it to other people and helping them to to imagine it the way that you imagine it. Yeah, that's cool. I I not I don't think I've ever uh, thought of a piece of music in quite that way. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Well, I I had I was very influenced by by the theater. Uh, I I was never I never acted in a play, but I. One summer, I audited a, a course for stage directors, and mm. thinking that I might learn something about conducting orchestras from that, and indeed I did. <laughs> I was I was transformed by it. Mm. That's cool. So speaking of all of this, um, so you started off just playing in the school band and became very interested in in composition and sort of understanding a piece of music as a whole, and eventually. At some point along the lines, you became a conductor. At what point? So, so you've created this program, the Music Paradigm. Where did that sort of initially emerge out of your conducting experience? Well, first of all, I never really intended to create the Music Paradigm. I never intended to be anything other than a musician. But as a music director, it became very clear to me that that uh, we're very dependent. Upon, upon the people who support the arts. Uh, and it just, it became strikingly and painfully obvious to me that 
that there aren't that many people in the population percentage-wise that care about this kind of music, that, to whom it speaks or who, whose lives are enriched by it. And I began to realize that this was really an un unhealthy thing. And I wanted to challenge myself to see whether there was a way that I could introduce people who didn't, to whom music didn't speak to what it felt like to really be deeply moved by music. And that was my objective. And I wanted to do it. I had done so much in the way of music appreciation and, you know, pre-concert talks and, mm. and educational concerts and all that. And, and at, at a certain point, I, I kind of, I stopped, I stopped really believing in that because I thought that the medium was the message. And the moment somebody says, I know about something and I'm going to teach you about it, that automatically sort of blocks people from, from discovering something really fundamental in themselves. Mm. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to do it in a, an, an interactive experience. And the goal was, could I create an experience that the people who participated in it would feel the same things that, that musicians feel and that I felt and that made me fall in love with music? That, that was my objective. And when I finally sort of, after years of contemplating this, when I put it all together and, and launched it, it, it was so amazingly successful. And but then I started getting feedback that this was really useful for organizations. Hmm. And that had not been my objective, but I sort of, I was, I was curious about that. And so I explored that more. And then I began to discover not only was it useful, but it was uniquely useful and incredibly powerful for them. And so I just followed that opportunity. How did it first, I mean, so at this point in your career, is the music paradigm, um, like what percentage of your work is actually focused on the music paradigm versus directly on conducting? At this time, at this time in my career, when I was, yeah. when I was inventing it, oh, I'd say 95% of my attention was on my conducting and 5% on the music paradigm. And, but, and has that, has that shifted now? It's, kind of, it's reversed. <laughs> uh, uh, because, but the music paradigm was so unexpected and it was so, uh, it, it just, it cried out that it was so important. And in fact, that it was so beautiful that mm. I was really, I was really drawn to it. And, uh, in addition to which, I felt it was a contribution that was really important to make. So you mentioned that, um, you, the feedback you were getting was that this was really, useful to people in organizations. Right. So what are some of the sort of key lessons or, or key things that people ha that, that have come out of the music paradigm for that purpose? That's kind of interesting. The, 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 the question that you ask, because in a way in the music paradigm, people don't learn any new lessons. Okay. They don't, they don't get any new information. Uh, what happens instead is that they connect dots differently than the things that are already in their lives and, and which the, f they make a sort of sense about it. And it, it, you know, there's a way that it all fits together. But after the experience in the orchestra, they see the same things, but they look different. And different values come out of it. And especially 
a different kind of understanding of your own power and your own ability to affect things and that so much of, of what the things that, that challenge you, that actually you, you have an opportunity to change that and to make, and, and to make that different. Mm. So you can't say that that's picking up any tips or anything. Uh, although people may pick up tips, but that's not really the main thing. Because, you see, life unfolds in a, at a certain speed, and it's fairly slow. So that something that you do today that comes from your blind spot, and you don't realize what the implications are, but two weeks from now, you may discover that there's a conflict that, that came out of that particular behavior. But it's, it's hard to figure out what the source of that conflict was. But because music unfolds so much faster and so many things happen so close to each other, it's very easy to see exactly what causes what. Hmm. Because music, you take action and it turns into results instantaneously. So in the music paradigm, there's a lot of role playing. And there's a lot of, let's see what happens if, if this was our mindset or if these were our values, or if this was our approach, how would this passage sound? So then the orchestra plays, and immediately it sounds different. But there's no question about what caused it, because, because it was the behavior that I asked the orchestra to model. Hmm. So, so these demonstrations that I asked the orchestra to do, um, first of all, they're very authentic, and everybody knows they're authentic, because the orchestra doesn't know what they're going to be asked to do. They don't know what the role players, what the role playing is going to be. And a lot of the role plays are kind of humorous, um, and uh, and so the the orchestra throws them throws themselves into it, and instantly you hear something change, and then we talk about it. Well, what mm. changed, and w- what caused that? Now, all these things that I'm talking about are musical things, but they're all designed to speak to exactly what's going on in the in the sponsoring organization. What is the success that that organization is trying to achieve? And what are the impediments that are holding them back? And what, what are the dysfunctions that, that's going on that people are not particularly aware of? So I designed the role plays in such a way that, that listening to the orchestra for the people, the participants, becomes kind of like looking in the mirror. And because it's music, it's more true in music than it is in real life because you can see exactly what it is and what causes what. That in life those connections are kind of not so so absolutely clear. Hmm. So can you can you actually like walk me through a little bit of sort of an example uh, of like a, what a typical if there is such a thing as a typical session. Um, but like, so you mentioned that you, um, you design each session around sort of the specific needs of the organization that's coming to you. Sure. Um, well, I'll so give like, you, I'll give you an example. The, yeah. yeah uh, so there was one client of mine, it was a huge organization and it was undergoing a huge transformation. And it was like seven, they had a goal seven years in the future that they wanted to become a really different organization. And that, that's a big investment. And a lot was at stake in this. And it was the number one most important thing that they were doing mm. because it was uh, setting themselves up to become competitive for the way the world was going to be in the next decade. And they decided, 
you know, that they, in order to make this transformation a success, they needed to get the leadership of the organization on board and in, completely enrolled in it because only the leaders could enroll everybody else. Now, leaders, they, they tend to be really good problem solvers. And of course, that's a great thing. But in a way, there's, there's, it's not enough because if your attitude is simply, you know, when there's a problem that comes up, I will solve that then it's not very good in bringing people into a place that, that hasn't yet happened. It has to be a much more engaging kind of leadership and much more proactive and much more enrolling people and opening up to them to the possibilities. So that was what they wanted to They wanted to train their leaders to, to become more like mm. that, more okay. proactive uh, and not just problem solving. So mm. I invented for this the following exercise. At a certain point, I said to the musicians of the orchestra, we're going to play this passage now. And I already described how there were some section leaders in the orchestra, the principal players, the principal trumpet, you know, the principal cello and all that. I said, in this, in this run-through, the principal players are going to be completely committed to the performance. But the rank and file of every section is going to do as little as possible without getting caught. <laughs> so everybody laughs. And... Uh, and then, and then the orchestra does it. And you look around the orchestra and you can see the principal players really digging in. And you can see everybody else kind of sitting back and, you know, they're playing, but they're not giving anything. And lo and behold, the orchestra sounds perfectly fine. And, and people are sort of, they have this, the participants, they have this sort of quizzical look on their faces. They're trying, they're trying to, what's, what's wrong with that? That's fine. And when I stop them, I, I, I point out that that's what I see on their faces. And I say, but this shouldn't surprise you because we all know this is the way most organizations in mm -hmm. the world work. Yeah, absolutely. That, that we, draw on, on, we don't draw on the full potential of our people. We draw on a small part of what they have to offer. And still, you can get by. And you wouldn't even consider this to be a dysfunction until you heard the following. And I say, what would this very same passage sound like if every musician used everything you know, whether you're asked or not, all the most inspiring things in your background and every, everything that you uniquely have to offer that nobody asked you for? What happens if you threw that all in here and made this orchestra sound the way these people never imagined it could? So then they, they play the same passage. And it's like, wow, it's, <laughs> it's the same notes. It's the same music, but the feel of it and the energy of it is so completely different that people are just, they're blown away. Mm. And, then, and then I say that this is a very challenging demonstration for anybody who's a leader. Because if you're the type of person who just solves problems, you will never draw that kind of energy. So that's an example. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's really cool just to hear sort of the specific uh, what that looks like in a specific setting. So so then after the group um, goes through this experience with you, then what happens? They walk out of the room, they go back to their everyday lives. Is there some sort of well, like... I, after the musicians are excused, mm -hmm. I like to keep everybody for another half hour and we have a little talk about what what happened. And it's basically a question and answer 
where mm. they, they, they either ask questions or they reflect on. I ask, so what was a, an important moment for the, in this and why was that important? And why, was, why is that meaningful for this audience? Because the fact is that all of this, the, these experiences, they're coming in a symbolic language. It's the language of metaphor. Because, of course, we're not talking about their organization. We're not talking about business issues. We're talking about things that happen in the orchestra. But everybody is reading it as if it's talking about them and mm. their business. And so, but because it's symbolic, it needs to be unpacked a little bit. Yeah. Uh, they need time to digest it because it's so powerful and it's so moving and it's so funny and uh, it's just kind of overwhelming. And I want them to be able to, to hear each other and the, the, um, the insights that they, they took from it. So we do that. And then depending upon the organization, then they either ask me to, to, uh, to help them keep this alive. Or sometimes they just they go back to it. Hmm. They go back to their work. What's the biggest, uh, like, if you've been able to see sort of shifts coming out of this experience, um, what's the biggest shift that you've seen happen within an organization as a result of this process? Well, I'm not really the best person to answer that because being a musician, you know, I don't, I don't really, first of all, I don't stay with the organization and I don't, I don't track what the yeah. changes are, but mm. I do ask, I do ask the clients about what happened. Mm -hmm. There was one client, for example, who said to me, "I knew that this was going to be important for my people, but I did not know that six months later it was going to be the only thing that people remembered from the whole conference." Mm. Um, and there are always the reviews, the you know the the ratings that people make after the conference. That's routine, and this always come, is the high, most highly rated segment. Uh, and then there are the people who talk about uh, their how they how they changed the relationship to the people that they lead, how they uh, they saw they recognized their tendency to step in. And, and take over and consequently disempower their people. Something that they had done before but had never seen the implications of. But after they had seen that modeled by the conductor with the orchestra, they, it gave them the space to become aware. So there are mm -hmm. all kinds of anecdotes that people have, uh, especially about how they work with their people. But then people tell me that, that they, they use it in the way they parent. And... Uh, because these, you know, they're, they're generalized lessons and, um, and people apply them whenever, whenever they, they can. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all just humans interacting That's with right. other humans. <laughs> yeah. And our behavior at home and at work is fundamentally probably very much the same. Yeah. Mm. I love that, that element of that they're just there. You're giving them the space to make observations and make these connections of things that they're doing in their everyday lives, but they're just not seeing because it's so ingrained in the way that they're working. Yeah. And so this this experience is creating sort of a, a space 
in which that reflection can happen and then it becomes something that I think you continue to sort of unpack internally over time, I would imagine. I think, Dina, that's a, a brilliant observation because, you know, in, in organizations, especially business organizations, they're not lacking for lessons. They're not lacking for how-tos. What they're lacking is the, is the openness to, to really being willing to look at themselves and recognize that, that there, are certain, there are certain blind spots that they have and certain behaviors that they're not seeing. And because, by and large, these are very successful people, you know, generally they're, you know, they're the top of the company, they're, they're wealthy, uh, they have a lot of authority, people obey them and all that. They really don't want to be told how to do anything. And so if you do, even if you have exactly the right lessons, and even if you deliver them in the, the most engaging kind of way, it's still somebody, it's like parent-teacher, it's I know something that will make you better. And the fact right. is that people really don't like that. Even if they want to, they don't like it. So what I create, however, is a, a, a space, and it's a safe space because even though these people are going to see paraded in front of them the things about themselves that they don't want to acknowledge, but it's never about them. It's always about the orchestra, and it's about me. So nobody, even when somebody's weakest point is being modeled, nobody ever feels attacked. And, mm -hmm. and yet, and nobody's telling them, think about this, think about what this means for you, this could be you. No, that's never said. You just leave it to people on their own to find this. And, and that's I, what I think is the most powerful kind of learning because Absolutely. then they discover the insight themselves. And what you have discovered yourself, you are much more likely to take ownership of than when somebody else shares their discovery with you. Yeah. As, a, as an educator and as a coach, I really, I think that's, that's really like, uh, the ultimate goal of all uh, sort of learning environments is to help figure out how can I help this person to uh, hear the things that I want them to learn, to, to actually take those things in. And, and um, I think in this example, it's really, it's just creating that space for them to, to make, make those conclusions on their own. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a lot of care that goes into the design of the space because, you see, we have these very, these very successful, powerful uh, executives. You know, they're used to knowing. They know what's, what's what. They know what to do. They, they know how to solve the problems, all that. Well, they, they walk into the room and suddenly they're in an orchestra and, the, and they're not even told what's going to happen or what to do. Mm -hmm. Of course, nobody can tell them because, because it's improvised. Uh, right. It's not really scripted. And so they're sitting down there and, they're, and suddenly all the things, that, the attachments that, that make them feel secure and make them feel strong and all that, they're gone. And they're strangers in a strange land. And that's, that's kind of unusual for them. Well, once they're there, then the first thing that I do is I make the room delightful. 
because that's not difficult because they're listening to music. But they're still a little, they're still un, a little uncertain about, about like what's going to happen to them. But then the room becomes very funny. You know, funny things happen. There are no jokes told, but there are, there are funny observations that are made, and people begin to reveal themselves, mm-hmm. and so, so they start to feel safe. And then in that in that that atmosphere of safety, then I begin to uh, create chal- demonstrations that challenge them, but they don't challenge them directly. They challenge them indirectly, and so this it's very important to take them out of their comfort zone, to take away from them the things that that both have been very strong for them, but are also holding them back from growing into what they need to be in order to make their organization strong in the future. Mm. Because that's most business organizations, what they're trying to do is they're trying to set themselves up so that they remain competitive in, in the world as it changes. And it's constantly changing. So people have to be, be willing to embrace different kinds of roles and different kinds of behaviors. Mm. So that's a perfect segue. Uh, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about teams and organizations and sort of the lessons that can be taken from music in an orchestra setting into different parts of our lives. But this podcast is called Everyday Creative People. So I want to, I guess, uh, draw the line a little bit more concretely to creativity, where does creativity come into all of this? I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, I see every, every moment it has the potential for, for uh, being creative, for creative acts. Hmm. Uh, I don't see that there are certain creative moments and others that are not. I, I guess... see kind of creativity as always present. Right. I totally agree. I think what I, I guess what I'm wondering is... You know, I think a question that I'm always sort of um, seeking to answer and to, to find new answers to is what are the things that uh, the factors that enable creativity to flourish? And it sounds to me like the environment of the music paradigm is an environment in which a lot of creativity can emerge. But I'm curious if you have any sort of specific insights about things that uh, can be taken away from your lessons, either through the music paradigm or through your work as as a musician and as a conductor. You know, what are the elements that really enable creativity to thrive? Well, I think it's, it's seeing the things that you frequently see, but seeing something different in them. In other words, nothing has changed in what's outside of you. But inside of you, the way, the way, the connecting of the dots, the discovery of elements or dimensions that you hadn't noticed there, mm. ultimately, they lead to the discovery of a power that you have that you didn't realize that you had. Mm. Uh, the discovery of uh, a freedom. You discover that this thing that 
that has been dogging you and all that, that actually there's, there's a way that you can either put it aside and not be dogged by it, or there's a way you can transform it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and get, get into a new place. I mean, there, there are just endless ways of describing this. But yeah. what I, what I, what really inspires me about my work is that people come out of it discovering that they have a lot more power to do the things that they want to do than what they had expected. Hmm. And the power comes in the way you think about it. And a lot of times, you know, it's, uh, it's discovering that the barrier that's been holding you back is not from outside, but it's from inside. And that there are ways that you can transform that. And then, and then through your own volition and your own proactivity to, to move to a higher stage. Hmm. I, you know, it's, it's interesting hearing you say that because it's making me think about, um, so I, I did not get a chance to read your full book, but I did, I did sort of browse through, uh, your book, uh, Maestro, what is the full title? Maestro, a surprising, a surprising story. story about leading by listening. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting just thinking back on that because, uh, so in, in the book, uh, you have written it as sort of a narrative of an executive who's trying to, uh, pull together a team that has really kind of been failing, essentially. Um, and he's relying on all of his, uh, past experiences that have been very successful, uh, and none of the things seem to be working. And then he sort of goes into, um, the, he, he sort of discovers this orchestra, uh, and, and, and starts talking to the conductor and sort of experiencing these rehearsals, um, and starts sort of uncovering things through that process. And I think, uh, what happens in that story is exactly what you're talking about in terms of, um, that I think sometimes we can get stuck because we've tried things in the past that proved successful and then we over rely on those things that have been successful to us in the past. And it can be easy to sort of get stuck in that rut. But then what happens in, in the story that you've written is that the experience of sitting in that orchestra enables him to suddenly see his work through a completely different lens that he never saw it through before. Right. In his own work, he can't see it. But when right. he's, and especially talking to the, or, to the conductor and the, or, the conductor explaining how he thinks about the orchestra, that enables him to see his work in a different way. It's a different lens that he's looking through. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think getting stuck is a really important part of the creative process. Hmm. I think every, every great creative advance has, has been preceded by being stuck, you know, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's staying with that. And, and then suddenly you see it differently. You, you discover that, whoa, this is a completely different situation. There are different forces at play here than what I thought. And there are different barriers. And, and some of the barriers that, that I was fighting against, they're not even, they don't even exist. They're just right. a construct. Right. You know, 
so I think that's a supremely creative moment. And, um, and what a fantastic thing to, to be able to, uh, to create an environment where people can discover that. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of why this is so fulfilling for me. Yeah, I love that because often it's, it's difficult to take ourselves out of our own, um, yeah. out of the rut that we're in. So we need to seek out experiences and things that will take us away from that. Like, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I think a lot of sort of creativity research, they look at like what happens in the unconscious brain and that sometimes you need to stop focusing so hard on the thing that you're trying to figure out and put yourself into that new environment, which is completely unrelated to the thing that you've been working on. But then your unconscious brain is able to sort of make those connections. And that's where that spark of creativity comes from. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about practicing the, the ukulele and anybody who practices an instrument knows that you're going to, there's, there's something you want to accomplish. You know, you want to play it a, a certain thing that you, you, your fingers aren't going there or, or right. you, you, they're going there at a certain speed, but they're not going there at the speed that you want them to. And so you're going to repeat it. You're going to repeat it. And mm -hmm. it, sometimes it doesn't feel as though anything is happening. You're just doing it over and over. But there comes a moment where you discover that this is a different thing than what I thought. And, and if I just use that insight, at, that suddenly I can do it where I couldn't do it before. Hmm. And this, of course, is a physical act, but it also could be a conceptual act. It could be the act of, of communicating. It could be the act of conceiving of a problem. Uh, and what I find just absolutely beautiful and, and fascinating is that the things that musicians train at, and you know, you know how, how musicians train. I mean, there's so much training that they, there's actually ways that, that, the kinds of training that other people would benefit from can be symbolized by that training and can actually make those other ways of, 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 of thinking and being easier for other people to find. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Roger. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Well, I really enjoyed it too. So if people want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, where can they seek you out? Well, there's a website, which is musicparadigm.com. And on it, there's uh, contact information and a way of, of writing to me. And you can find out about the book. There are videos and there are blogs and, and a number of things. You can find out where I'm going to be. Okay. Um, if you want to experience something like that, mm -hmm. that can often be arranged. Not always, but often. Cool. Um, so that's sort of the epicenter, and then people that is it. seek you out from there. Great. Um, yeah. well, and, thank and if you can, you can befriend us on Facebook and all that stuff. Perfect. All right. So uh, go seek Roger out. This stuff will all be in the show notes, so I'll have links and everything that people can follow. Um, thank you so much, Roger. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Everyday Creative People. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast. Leave a comment and make sure you tell your friends to come listen. And remember, we'll be back with another episode next Monday. 